Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What I really came to rely on was the foundation of positive thinking, yes, but it was also stories and reminding myself of these moments that were already there, those I could lean into. The idea of telling myself to smile was not something I could lean into in the midst of my own grieving and my own loss, but reminding myself of beautiful stories about my mom, you know, or thinking about something that made me laugh, that's what I could do in that moment. And MicroJoys is really about finding joy in spite of everything else. Welcome to the Unwind Podcast, a podcast for you to relax, drift off and allow your mind to wander. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, a best-selling author, entrepreneur and researcher on a mission to share information that will help you live happier, healthier, and with more love, optimism, and wisdom. This podcast features interviews with well-known guests and world-leading experts about what it truly means to be human and what we can do to become the very best versions of ourselves. On today's Unwind, we have the inspirational Cindy Spiegel, who is the best-selling author of The Year of Positive Thinking that sold hundreds of thousands of copies around the world. Cindy is a world-leading speaker on the subject of positive psychology and has written a new book to brighten our days even more. And this is called Micro Joys, finding hope, especially when life is not okay. Trying to pick ourselves up in those moments when life just sends you lemons can feel virtually impossible. And so this book is such a gift. It is easy to read. It's delightful. Every page is like a warm hug. And I'm sure we can all relate to those moments when we just need a little bit of joy and we can't see any. So this is why I'm thrilled to invite Cindy on the show to dive into the question, how do we still find genuine joy when rationally we know it's there, but subjectively we can't find it? I would love to begin by you sharing a piece of writing that can be your your own or someone else's to begin this chat. Excellent. So this is actually from MicroJoys. We will continue to experience the topsy-turviness of being alive, but, and, it is still our God-given right to feel good, joyful, and happy too. Each of us has the profound ability to uncover joy almost everywhere. And in the rare moments when we can't, we learn to trust that in due time and with patience, our faith in the possibility of joy will eventually reemerge. Until then, we sit We listen, we dance, we cry, we feel, we walk, we fall, we dust off, and in time, we begin to rise once again, because of and in spite of everything. Gosh, that is so beautiful. 
there's a few words that I just want to pick out of that, which really resonated with me. And one of those words that you use is patience. Yeah. I feel like so much of our inability to find joy sometimes is through lack of patience. Yeah, because we we're surrounded and we're within this culture that is asking us to be joyful and happy all the time. And that's just not life, right? That's not a permanent state of being. And so over the past few years, something that I've learned in a way I never have before was this ability to be patient, to sit with the difficult things and wait them out is the reality of it, right? It's like we have to be patient and we really have to shift our own inner narrative around joy and happiness being an internal state of being, a way that we constantly are. Patience is the only way we'll get to the other side of the difficult. Yeah, it's amazing, actually, you know, the old saying, patience is a virtue. And you're reminded in that it truly isn't a virtue that we're never really taught to cultivate or nurture. No. You know, if we're lucky, we're around someone who is patient and we see that being mirrored. But I don't know that most of us are so lucky to be around that and to to bear witness to it. You know, I didn't grow up in a house where there was a ton of patience. And I think it is a virtue that comes with wisdom, comes with age, and comes with experience. To know that there is another side, especially when you're in that rainstorm. Yeah. And to know that there's a whole spectrum, right? That that it's not binary, right? There are so many different experiences we are going to move through in life. And sometimes the only way to get to whatever is next is through patience. And I do think we're living in a culture, especially with social media, which is the opposite of patience. Yes. Even more so, patience has been stripped from our day-to-day life. That's right. Instant. Everything's instant, right? The idea of having to sit and wait for anything is just not something that I think so many of us are familiar with anymore. You're so right. It is the opposite of a social media culture. And then it's easy to think that things are going wrong just because it's not happening instantly. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. You know, and again, it's that patience is a virtue. Having the ability to sit with all of it, you know, you mentioned social media, The challenge with that, right, is that we're showing the good stuff on social media. Mm. We're showing the bright, shiny parts of ourselves on social media. We're not showing ourselves sitting quietly, patiently waiting for whatever is to come next, you know, for that other shoe to drop. And so patience is a real missed opportunity for getting to the other side. It really is. What are some of your strategies to develop patience? Because I feel that this is essentially what the book teaches you in many ways. I mean, they're called micro joys, but, you know, hand in hand, patience helps you to experience more micro joys. But for anyone listening who feels they're kind of an impatient person, and I definitely fall into that category, what can we do to maybe work on our patience? Yeah, I mean, I would certainly and I need to be clear about this. I am no expert on patience. I have very little of it, except in the past (laughs) few years where I've had to. And the reason I say that is because for me, it took really getting to the bottom, you know, Mm -hmm. like so many things just it, it felt like life was stacked against me. And I've never felt that way ever. But so many things went wrong so quickly, that truly, I almost felt like I didn't have a choice but to be patient. And we don't want to wait until we don't have a choice to nurture Mm. that ability. And so something that I started doing over the past few years, now I know this is going to sound incredibly boring and it is, 
but I have learned so much from it. And that is just sitting and taking in everything around you. Now, I do this from a, a chair that is in the corner of my living room. I do this if I'm at a cafe. Um, you can do this sitting in your car, but it's just this idea of sitting, setting a timer for 10 minutes, do five minutes if that works for you, and noticing every single detail of what's around you and noticing it to the point that you've exhausted your brain a little bit. Because remember, you have a timer set, right? And so you're going to keep doing this until that timer goes off. But what it has taught me is the ability to be in the present, right? So patience also really gifted me the opportunity to be present. And that simple exercise is something that puts me in that place over and over and over again. You know, I don't think there's one way to find patience, but sitting and being where you are and noticing what's around you, noticing what you smell, what you feel is one way to get there. And another is being around. Now, again, I know this sounds cliche, but small children, I don't have kids, I have cats and pets. They will teach you this, you know, they will teach you this over and over again. And so I just want folks to really understand that this is something you're going to keep coming up against in life, right? This is not a one-shot deal. This, there's no recipe for finding it, right? This is something we have to keep reminding ourselves of and keep practicing. Yeah. It's, it reminds me of something that you write in your book. You may find that doing nothing is more difficult than you expect. <laughs> the perception of wasting time feels counter to so many of our cultural beliefs. Mm. And I, I mean, it popped out on the page because, as I said, I, this is a skill I really need to work on. I'd love to discuss that difficulty in thinking that we're wasting time when we do exercises like that, lying down and just noticing what's around us. Yeah. I mean, I think, and I, I mentioned it in the book too, we have these sayings like get busy living or get busy dying. Like it's so ingrained in us to feel like we constantly have to be on the go. Mm. And it doesn't matter where you live at this point. It, if you have the internet, you feel this constant tug to be moving, moving, moving. And the truth of the matter is, is I think that that's bred in us, this inability to not move this inability to be quiet. And so we really have to hone it. You know, I can speak for myself for sure, living in New York City where there's a constant energy and there's a constant buzz in the air that, I mean, no one sits home for more than a few minutes because we're constantly on our way out all of the time. And that is what I grew up in. That's where I spent most of my adulthood. And so having to do anything that isn't that takes patience, patience with ourselves, you know, the ability to keep coming back to this lesson and keep sitting and keep watching and keep listening, because it's not something that instantly happens. It's a practice that we must learn to hone. Yes, it's a real choice. And, you know, mm -hmm. another theme of this book is the benefit of deep rest. Deep rest is something I think we all wish we could get more of. And I often think that our homes aren't really designed to mm -hmm. even support moments of deep rest. So how do you mostly cultivate your deep rest and what does that look like? So first, you know, the first thing I'd say is I moved out of New York City and moved to a suburb in New Jersey, which is just 30 minutes away from the city. But it really, you know, as we talk about our homes and cultivating rest, I think it's depending on where you live, sometimes there doesn't feel like there's enough space to even do that. And what I've come to notice is that you can make that space 
anywhere. For mm-hmm. me, I did physically need to leave for various reasons. I physically needed to, to leave the city, but with sort of taking time every single day to find moments to sit, I've really come to understand myself differently. And now I know almost immediately not to push through. So if I feel as though I'm about to be overworked or if my brain is just shutting down, I know instantly because I've cultivated this practice of patience, I know now to just stop what I'm doing right away. So a bit of this is really trusting our intuition, Mm. right? When we feel as though we are coming to the brink of something, stop. Stop and allow yourself to sit for a few minutes. Get out and go for a walk for a few minutes. You know, find a corner in your home and know that when you go to that place, that's sort of your timeout space. So again, you know, I talk about that chair in the corner. We have lots of places in, you know, in our home. I'm sitting in my office right now, but I know when I need a break exactly where I'm going to go sit, you know? So I think find that place that immediately brings you quiet and create it. If you can't find it, create it in your home. I love that. Such an actionable tip, just to consciously choose a place that you're going to allow yourself, give yourself permission um, to engage in practices like deep rest. So to wind back, because we've jumped into some of the contents, let's start from the top being, you wrote this book, A Year of Positive Thinking. And I think positive thinking then kind of went through like this quite challenging moment of is positive thinking good for us? And you've come out with this truly wonderful book, Micro Joys, which to me, I resonated with so much. What's been your journey from the first book to the second book? And why did this have to be your second book? Yeah, so when I wrote A Year of Positive Thinking was in 2018. And I, you know, I believe everything that's in that book. This is not to say that micro joys is true now and a year of positive thinking isn't. But I think we also have to understand that there is an evolution, right? So who the Cindy Spiegel that wrote the book in 2018 was 100% behind everything that is in that book. It is very easy to understand. It's very actionable. It is a reminder. I think of that as like an entry level way into positive thinking. Mm. The difference really happened post 2020. So much happened so quickly. You know, my my nephew was killed the same weekend that George Floyd was killed in the United States. My um, my mom died. My brother went into cardiac arrest. I was diagnosed with breast cancer. So many things happened in such a short amount of time while in the midst of a global pandemic. And even if none of those things happened, I don't know anyone who was prepared for what we were moving into in 2020 Mm. and beyond. I just remember thinking after my nephew was killed that I didn't know how to tap into every resource that I knew to be true, Mm. particularly the things that I wrote about in a year of positive thinking. They are short, they are pithy, they're easy to understand. I was in such a state of shock and grief that that was not going to do it for me. Like the words in that book, it's as much as I stand for those words in that book, I think we have to know what resources we need at any particular moment. And that wasn't it for me. And so then I started to feel a bit of imposter syndrome because I thought, well, shit, on top of writing this book, I can't even buy it myself right now. Mm. And I think that's the reality of any of us who have any sort of art that is put into the world is that there is a timeliness to it. 
And so for me, as I was moving through the past few years, and I say moving through as opposed to moving on, because we don't move on from any of that, you know, Uh, we move through it, we move through it as best we can. And sometimes we get stuck. But what I really came to rely on was the foundation of, of positive thinking, yes, but it was also stories and the beauty of stories and reminding myself of these micro opportunities or these moments that were already there, those I could lean into. The idea of telling myself to smile was not something I could lean into in the midst of my own grieving and my own loss. But reminding myself of beautiful stories about my mom, you know, or thinking about something that made me laugh or walking through the world and being hyper aware of everything happening around me, that's what I could do in that moment. And micro joys is really about finding joy in spite of everything else. So it means that we hold joy in one hand and grief in the other. And there's a big difference between those two books, right? And I I like to say like, this is not a year of positive thinking, like part two. Mm. It's a very different book. It's memoir, it's stories. It is what I had to dig up to find my own joy again. It is examples of things that are accessible to us, even in the midst of the hardest things. It is a reminder that we deserve to touch joy despite everything else, which is very, very different than a year of positive thinking. And I think, and my, my hope is that microjoys allows all of us to see the world through a much wider lens, a lens that isn't just about positive thinking, but that says, how do we hold joy in one hand? and grief in the other at the exact same time, always. And that is such a question, because when we are in grief and at the bottom of the human emotion spectrum, that feels like a million miles away to be able to kind of have two hands open. But you mark the journey in doing so. And so what is a micro joy? So a micro joy is really about honing the ability to access joy despite all else. And that's, this book is 45 essays, but it's really, it's about how do we find it? How do we hone it? Because that's what it is, right? It comes down to how do we build this practice? And it's through the actions that we take every day and primarily through noticing what's right in front of us. So I'd like to say that a micro joy is a little bit misleading, right? The title of the book, because it sounds like it's a tiny thing and it's not. What it is, is it's easily accessible to us. So we don't have to search for it. We don't have to look very far. It's something that is in front of us. So it really requires presence. You know, we talked about patience a few minutes ago, and ultimately patience comes from presence. And that is the foundation of micro joys. It's really building a toolkit for yourself of joy that is able to be accessed when you need it most. So not a small joy. No, and you make a clear distinction that micro joys do not guarantee happiness. Yes. How so? So first of all, nothing guarantees happiness. And I think that's a bit of the toxic positivity that I'm hoping this book helps us to move away from. This is not a book that you pick up and go, at the end of the day, I'm going to be happy. It's not a recipe book for happiness, right? What it is is about And again, I go back to that beautiful word you called out, patience. What Microjoys is, is a book that offers you tools and insights into cultivating your own ability to find Microjoys, to cultivate patience, and to have this as a toolkit when you need it. 
but you're not going to pick up this beautiful little book and say, whew, glad that's over. Now that I read that, everything's perfect. It's like, that's not the way the world works, right? But we learn these gifts and these nuggets that allow us to move through things. And that's what this is. Because you write that micro joys remind you how wild, imperfect, and precious life is by teaching us deep wisdom and profound beauty. Our responsibility is to be conscious enough to notice them. That's interesting. Staying conscious and yet also allowing ourselves to experience all the different emotions. Um, Because, you know, when we are faced with a really intense emotion, I think naturally we want to become unconscious. We want to distract. We want to move away. So what are some actionable tips that you encourage people to do to stay conscious even when it can be deeply painful to be present in that emotion? So the first thing I think is we have to accept that the good, the bad, the tragic, the beautiful, the wild, the imperfect is all part of life. Like there has to be the foundation of this is acceptance. And you're so right. We do. We often want to quickly escape through many ways, right? We can think of many ways that we choose to escape. And one of the most brilliant lessons that I have taken away from the difficulty of the past few years is sitting with it. Mm. Right. So when I lost my mom, who I was very, very close to, and I'm still close to, and I talk about that in the book, my instinct was not to run in that case, because I knew that what I needed was to accept what I needed was to accept that I would never be the same woman in this lifetime again. What I needed was to accept everything that I'd learned from her. I needed to tap into every experience I had from her. And by numbing out and trying to run away from it, I would lose her, you know? And I think when I talk about grief, it's not just about somebody dying. I think there are many ways we grieve our old selves. You know, we grieve our past experiences. We grieve relationships. And it's really important, I think, to experience the spectrum of emotion, we have to get used to accepting all of it. And so I spent the better part of the last two and a half years sitting in it and being willing to be upset, being willing to be angry, being willing to cry, being willing, even as a very public person to hide away from everyone. This is the difficult stuff. It's not something we're trained to do. It's not something we're always taught to do. But to me, I am able to find the deepest of joys only because I've sat with the hardest of sorrows. And you really do need both. We need to understand both. We have to be willing to accept both. And there is no one way of acceptance, right? That's really up to the individual. But I think at the very least, we can ask ourselves what it would look like to accept what is. You're an amazing teacher and reminding and encouraging us to sit and accept the things that appear in individual lives. But who were your inspirations in taking you on this journey of wisdom? So I think all of us have wisdom, right? We have inner wisdom. We have intuition. We, again, I go back to honing. We have to hone everything, right? My inspiration is many, obviously. it's I talk about my mom a lot in the book. It's my mother, but it's also reading, studying, being a constant student of life, right? So Pema Trot, are you familiar with Pema Chodron's work? When things fall apart. I'm not. I'd love to hear more about it. Okay. So she is a Tibetan Buddhist. 
And I've gifted this book 11 times, but her book, When Things Fall Apart, is a book that I go back to over and over again. So as someone who values self-study, I find that not only am I relying on other adults and other women in particular, but also the people around me. I think there are folks around us that we choose not to pay attention to. And when we do, we notice that there is wisdom. So I am constantly listening to the stories of strangers. I will strike up a conversation with you in the line at the food store, having a cup of coffee. I will strike up a conversation and those conversations find me even when I don't want to. So I think there's a certain willingness to cultivate an openness with strangers. So for me, I think of Pema Chodron, I think of Elizabeth Gilbert's work, I think of Cheryl Strayed, I think of Maya Angelou. There are so many incredible folks that we've heard of, but there are also so many that we haven't. And I think that's something that we can all do more of, which is striking up these conversations and really gleaning and learning from the wisdom of the folks around us. And that means being willing to talk to strangers and being willing to put yourself in scenarios and situations that you wouldn't necessarily choose to be in any other time. There's always so much to learn and so much wisdom to glean. Do you have a story that you can share about a random encounter with a stranger that left you thinking? It's a much longer version in the book, but I would think about Leonard, who was uh, someone who was experiencing homelessness in my neighborhood in Brooklyn, and how I spent the better part of five years cultivating a relationship with him. Uh, He was always hanging around the neighborhood, and I don't recall very many people speaking to him. And I remember the first time after I had lived in this apartment for a while that I finally said, you know, I was passing him on the street and I said, hey, I see you here all the time. I'm Cindy. I live in that building. Now, that's not the kind of thing that most people would do. And, you know, you have to use your own judgment. Does this feel like a safe thing to do? But honestly, we built such a cool relationship over a five-year period of time of me living there. And come to find out, he was a veteran. He had been living in a rooming house had obviously fallen upon hard times. And every time I would see him, he would reintroduce himself to me. I would reintroduce him, you know, myself to him. And he had the most delightful smile, like the kind of person that you see in their entire face lights up when they smile. That is Leonard. And every time I would see him, he would bring me such joy. And what was so fascinating to me was there was one day, you know, there's always scaffolding up in New York City. I was running under the scaffolding, trying to get to a subway, wearing heels. And I said, you know, I kind of yelled, he was smoking a cigarette and I yelled and I said, hey, Leonard, stop smoking. That'll kill you. You know, have a good day. And he stopped me. He said, hey, you okay? You look like you're going somewhere really fast. You need anything? And as I'm running, he proceeds to pull out a $20 bill and give it to me. It's like, take this money. You look like you need it. Now, I know that that's kind of a random story, but the importance of that is the human connection piece, right? Now, here's someone who doesn't even have a place to live, but he's noticing because we've spoken, right? We've we've built this relationship. He's noticing that this is a different way of me showing up in the world. I'm running. I'm hurried. I'm clearly trying to get somewhere. You know, I'm clearly distracted. And he's like, wait a minute doesn't matter if he remembered every conversation we had. In that moment, he saw someone who needed to slow down. And this is somebody that most people don't even speak to. And do you know, of course, I didn't take the $20. I told him I would let him know what I needed it, but I did slow down. And I didn't 
break my ass walk into the subway, which was likely the outcome of me running in the rain. But I did slow down and his smile bought me so much joy and groundedness in that moment. And sometimes it's just a matter of listening to a person that you otherwise may not listen to because we all have a story to share. Oh, such a sweet story. Thanks for sharing that. I'd love to talk about micro joys as signs. And as as you write, these can be like arrows that exist to gently guide us. And, you know, I love this stray into the spiritual these signs from wherever you want to call it, the other realms that are, you know, our guides, our angels that are helping us in this reality. Can you share more about this and how signs have become so important in your own life? Yeah, I'm going to say the thing that I'm sure you don't even want to hear anymore, which is about consciousness and awareness and being present. As you cultivate this ability to be present over and over again, we start to notice the subtleties around us. You know, there was an essay that I talked about in the book of how I did this donation run and I donated all this stuff I didn't need anymore. And just as I was getting ready to run out of the thrift store, I saw this light over the glassware section and I was like, I was pulled back in. Instead of running out of the store, you know, I said, huh, that's interesting. I'll just go back in and look at the glassware section. And right under that light was a glass that I'd had the entire set of, but one of them broke the year before. And so there was one glass, which was exactly what I needed to make my own set at home whole again. Had I not paid attention to that light and the glassware section of this random thrift store, the glassware set that I have would not be whole again. So I think sometimes it's about paying attention and it's as simple as paying attention. You know, I think of instances or when you're thinking of someone and all of a sudden they call, Mm. or you look at the time that you wake up every single day. Like I just noticed that 304 seemed to be a thing. 304 seemed to be a thing. It's taking note of those things. And the more we notice them, the more conscious we are around them, right? So if I get up at 304 every single day, I stop trying to stay in bed and sit it out. Instead, what I would do when I woke up at 304, I'd look at the clock, I'd acknowledge the obvious thing, right? Like, here we go again. And I got up and I'd start to write. For whatever reason, I was called to write, not called to sleep in that moment. And so me following that is at least partially responsible for this book. It's partially responsible for so much of my work, which means, you know, sometimes during these regular waking hours, it's not the time that I can get my most creative work done. But when I notice time and time again that I'm getting up at 3.04, someone, somewhere, something uh, is calling me to get up and do something. And so my job is to listen. And that's what I try to do. And I think for all of us, it's pay attention and pay close attention. As you talk about how our nose is always in our phone, right? Your phone could be a resource for that. You know, noticing the time on your phone that you're seeing certain things, note it, like use your phone as a tool for that. But it's, again, it comes back to paying attention. What are your opinions? Do you believe it's loved ones communicating with us? Do you believe it's angels? Do you believe it's guides? Is it God? Carl Jung would call it synchronicity. And in Kabbalah, they say, you know, coincidences, there's no no such thing as a coincidence, it's a coordinated incidence. Mm -hmm. So there is this thread in these different kind of ancient traditions. But what's your personal opinion? Yeah, I think uh, I also am not a believer in coincidences, right? I think everything happens for a reason. I don't have a name 
for, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say God, I wouldn't say it's certainly not a human being, but I think that we are very interconnected. And these synchronicities happen because of an interconnectedness. They're not by mistake. Uh, and they're very easy to skip out on or to not pay attention to. But there is no question in my mind that there is an interconnectedness to the people who are alive and the folks who have passed. You know, beloved people who have passed, our ancestors, whatever that looks like. But it is our job to keep those relationships nurtured and to continue to build them long afterwards. You know, I talk a lot about how I feel about spirituality. There is no question in my mind that there is something much greater than me that guides every decision that I make. But I also wouldn't try to push that on anybody else. If that doesn't feel natural for you, then by all means, go with what works for you. But you could not argue with me that something bigger than me doesn't exist in the world. And in knowing that and believing that, it means that I can make better choices for myself. It means I can walk through the world knowing that someone else has my back. And that even if I don't know the answer right now, there is an answer and I will get to it. I don't know how to move through the world without that. I didn't grow, I'm Jewish. I didn't grow up with any deep sense of faith. This feeling that I'm talking about, this feeling of interconnectedness and spirituality is something I've always had. And we didn't name it in in my home, but I certainly didn't ever try to push it away either. And I think this innate thing that's been with me since childhood is something that a lot of us have when we acknowledge it. I would love to hear more about how and you know you we can nurture the relationship with loved ones that have passed because you know this is really important for you in the relationship you still have with your mother who is not in this realm but yet you're still very close. So, you know, the first thing is I think about our ancestors and folks who have passed. I still have a conversation with my mom. Now, that's not something that we're supposed to say out loud, I guess. I don't know. I'm, I'm never sure what we're supposed to do. I do it anyway. But <laughs> there's a picture of my mom in every room, in almost every room in our home, including the kitchen, where my mom sort of, that, that was her happy place. And I talk about her a lot in the book in that sense. But when my mom passed, I didn't, there was no severing of that relationship. I continue to have conversations. But what happened was an evolution of our relationship. I talk to my mom. I will say things aloud to her. I say goodnight to her at nighttime. Um, as I said, I have pictures around. I read a lot of my mom's cards. I listen to voice memos on my phone. These are things that bring me a deep sense of comfort. What would not bring me comfort is to hide all of my mom's pictures and pretend she didn't exist, to hide all of my nephew's pictures and pretend he didn't exist. There is a comfort in knowing that those who have passed are still here, that my dad is around me. And for me, it's about the tangible things that I can have in my home that allow me to nurture this intangible relationship. So I am one who constantly keeps pictures of so many people around. I constantly scroll through them in my phone when I need to feel, uh, feel nurtured. If I need to tap into creativity, I have a special candle that I light and I will put the person's picture. So my nephew, for example, who was 32 when he was killed, I will put his picture in front of it and I'll say, Bob, you know, I need you right now. I need to tap into what you have. And I, he's never let me down. You know, and so for me, it's about writing. It's about nurturing these relationships with our ancestors in ways that make sense to us today. 
Now, some of those things may not work for you. Some of those things may not work for anyone else. We all have to find those ways that work for us. Maybe talking out loud makes you feel weird. Don't do that. Think about what you want to say. Write letters. There are many things you can do. But that's how I continue to nurture relationship with spirit. You write about gifting in the book, about this, the, the power of giving people small gifts. And you say that gifting is your love language. What is the importance of gifting to you? And why do you encourage this as a micro joy practice? First of all, there's something incredibly thoughtful, right? In knowing that someone put in time and effort to gift you something. They didn't have to do this. They put in time. That means someone took a moment out of their day to think of you. What a beautiful gesture. And I find such deep joy in giving gifts and knowing that I've actually thought through who this person is, what they love, and I've gone on this quest to find them the perfect thing, whatever it is. And it's never about the amount of money you spend or the size of the gift, but it's about knowing who the person is that you are going to give this to and bringing them joy when you do. There's something so special about gifting someone something and seeing the smile that comes over their face and their eyes when they weren't expecting it. That is contagious to me. Like that, I just get back that joy tenfold. So all of a sudden, we're all feeling this gift. And I think that is a very easy way to tap into joy when we can't find it in other ways. In those moments when we're really down, you know, it's like, what can I pick up for this person? Because it's going to bring them joy. And in them feeling this joy, I will be the receiver of it as well. I love that. And it's such a nice little tip because it's true. When we're feeling down in life, as soon as we kind of change the attention onto someone else, it is remarkable what an uplift that gives us. So really appreciated that piece in the book. One element of micro joys you talk about is the fact that it allows us to sit in the middle of truths. Mm. And I thought this was really interesting because something I think that has rocked the world immensely collectively over the last few years is this right, wrong, I'm right, you're wrong, you're wrong, I'm right. This binary thinking that's driving people away from each other that probably have far more in common than they would ever give credit for. But because there's there's just one thing that they disagree on, there is, we create separation. So how do micro joys help us to sit in uncertainty perhaps or sit, you know, without having extreme viewpoints on things? Uh, because I think for whatever reason, I'd love to ask you why you think it is. The human brain likes to kind of have an opinion. We're not very good at just being indifferent or sitting in the middle or holding two truths. Well, you know, the first thing I would say is that there are, and I say this as a reminder for all of us, there are very few things in this lifetime that are absolute truths. Mm. There is your truth. There is my truth. Our truth is tied to our own lived experience, right? And so there are very few absolute truths. And when we keep that in mind, how interconnected it is to our lived experience, we leave the room to understand that I can disagree with something, but it doesn't make them wrong and me right. We simply disagree. And the beauty of micro joys, right? And I talk a lot about holding joy in one hand and grief in the other. It is inherently teaching us that life is all things. 
that two completely different things can be true at the same time. I can be grieving and still find moments of joy. And in allowing myself to experience these things, I more deeply connect to this idea that life is not binary. Nothing is absolute. Everything is tied to our lived experience. I think from a very practical reason, we want to box people in, right? It's how we connect to people. We have 70,000 thoughts a day. If, if we had to put a lot of effort into every single thing that happened, we'd be exhausted. And so for very practical reasons, we, we have to decide that this person is good or bad or right or wrong. Like it helps us to think. It helps us to move through the day. But what it isn't is critical thinking. It's not critical thought. You know, if we are really looking to connect with other people, we have to open our minds to listening to folks who have a different opinion. Now, listening to someone doesn't mean you have to agree with them. And that's something, particularly over these last few years, we have drawn a line in the sand. If you voted for this person, I can't talk to you. We have discounted 99% of a person for one of their beliefs, myself included, by the way. Like, this is something that I am still struggling to come to terms with. Because I know that inherently that's not the person that I am, but I think the world has been so divisive these last few years that sometimes it feels there's a bit of clinging to it, right? There's a bit of like, I need to be right right now because I don't know what else to feel. So I think we have to acknowledge the humanness and all of it and show ourselves and others a whole lot of grace. We are all trying to navigate a world that we've never walked through. And sometimes we are going to make decisions that we're not proud of. And as best as possible, we want to and can and have the capacity to do differently going forward. I think it's human that we want to choose one right way, but it's not necessarily um, helpful. And it's not necessarily in alignment with our integrity and our true ability to accept people as they are. Two things can be true. And how can the practice of micro joys help us practice this? Yeah, well, again, you know, inherently, when you're holding more than one feeling at one time, you're innately practicing it. Mm. And that is building a bit of a muscle, right? That says, if I can hold these opposite truths, then I can hold this one too. So it's teaching us in small ways every single day to hold more than one truth. Because I think part of the challenge with this divisive way that so many of us are showing up right now is because we're not seeing and living the reality of multiple truths at one time. We're not acknowledging it. Mm. We're not acknowledging it within ourselves to say, well, if you feel these two different things, then why can't someone else? So I think just the inherent nature of a micro joy is not about being only happy mm. or only experiencing joy. It's about mm. holding the spectrum. And when we learn to hold the spectrum, we can do that and strengthen that in other areas of our lives. And we can see that in other people. And I think that's the core of so much of this work. What's the best advice you've held dear to you and has steered you in the right direction over the course of your life? This too shall pass. It sounds so simple. It is so important to remember, not only when times are difficult, but when they are, when you are experiencing your highest of highs. This too shall pass because it is incredibly grounding that no matter what we are going through, it will pass. 
And what that means is it, it, to me, it instantly brings me back in alignment with my own integrity. Because no matter what newspaper said this cool thing about my work, or no matter what cool person said this thing, it's like, Cindy, you're just Cindy. And this moment (laughs) right here is going to pass. And then you're going to go back to being Cindy. (laughs) This too shall pass. And when we remind ourselves of that over and over and over again, it brings us back to what matters most, which is the core of who we are, our integrity. So please, like, if we take one thing away from this conversation, it is that, that this moment too shall pass. I really love that. It makes me laugh because it's so true that when we have the high, we never want it to pass. We kind of smugly sit there and be like, you know, celebrating our win. Mm -hmm. And you're right. It's so grounding to know that all the good and, of course, all the bad, we will get it back to equilibrium. Yeah. How do you wind down? What does an evening ritual look like to you? I'm very into rituals. Uh, So when it's time to wind down, I turn off, I I won't sit in front of the TV after a certain hour, just because of the light from the TV, the excitement for my brain. I have aura sprays that I use. I have essential oils that I use. I will moisturize my hands. Sometimes I'll moisturize my feet. I have a stack of 11 books at the side of my bed at any particular moment, depending on what my brain is needing. But it is important to me that every night I go through this exact same ritual. And before I do that, I obviously brush my teeth and I will moisturize my face. Something about having a clean face at night before I get into bed and then taking these steps to my husband jokes around. He's like, oh, you're spraying shit again. He knows. He knows (laughs) what's going to happen when I get in the bed. But I'm literally creating sort of a bubble around myself and then getting under the covers. And it prepares me to go to sleep in a way that. I've just really grown used to, and it just feels like the norm now. And sometimes I'm reminded that not everybody has aura sprays and essential oils and hand creams and everything by the side of their bed, but it really creates a separation in the day for me. I also love that you say you're you're really into rituals. Has that always been something that has been integral to your life? Yes-ish, but more so in the last few years when it felt like the bottom was falling out, Mm -hmm. that I needed to have these things that kept bringing me back, the things that were consistent over and over again. So I can't imagine moving forward without the importance of rituals of all kinds. That doesn't mean I have to keep the same one always, but having those things that don't change are invaluable. And a ritual is one of those. I love describing a ritual, having something that doesn't change. That's such a lovely way to describe it. Yeah. What would you say is one of the best decisions you've ever made? Not necessarily realizing it was such a good decision at the time, but when you look backwards, you can identify that as the best decision you could have ever made. Leaving the fashion industry was a decade ago. I, at that point, I had studied my business degree, my master's degree is in fashion. I traveled around the world working with makers and creators and artisans in Italy and Asia and France and all over the place. It's all I knew. I went to FIT for my undergrad, for my master's. I went on to teach at Parsons and FIT. It was literally dismantling a life, leaving the industry. I knew it was spring 2013 fashion week. I knew that night at the show that it wasn't going to get any better. I say that in in air quotes. It wasn't going to get any better than that. And I didn't feel fulfilled. It's so easy, particularly when it comes to what we do, 
And these outward titles that are impressive to people, like where you work and what your job title is, it's so easy to cling to them and assume that they are us. I knew that what I did in the industry was not who I was, and it was only a small part of what I was capable of. And so leaving the industry was hard. It it wasn't a hard decision, but it was hard because I had to figure out what the hell I was going to do with the rest of my life. It is by far one of the best decisions I've ever made. It's taking the unexpected turn. I just think that is such a good reminder that when you're, as you just said, you're at the peak of something and yet it still hasn't totally fulfilled you. I'm sure so many people can relate this to relationships they're thinking about leaving or jobs or even a party, for example. Yes, yes. (laughs) Definitely a party. Just leave the fucking party. (laughs) Leave the party. And it really kind of relates back to your practice of micro joys, of staying conscious and present to be able to ask yourself that question. Like, I think this is the best it's going to get. And how do I feel about it now? That's it. And be honest. Yeah. Let go of what everybody else and how they're going to feel about it. How do I feel about it in this moment? Do I want to leave the party? I know everybody's having a great time. Do I want to leave the party? And that was me leaving the party. Where is the best place for people to find you and where can they get their hands on Micro Joys, the book? Oh, they can get Micro Joys anywhere that they buy books at Pri hopefully at an independent bookstore in your neighborhood, just ask them for it or at a library. And they can find me on Instagram at Cindy Spiegel and everything will be there. And also at Dear Grown Ass Women. More of that on Instagram. Thank you so much for this brilliant interview. I've enjoyed chatting to you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This was such a joy. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed today, please hit subscribe and leave a comment because this helps the podcast so much. I'd be endlessly grateful if you wouldn't mind doing so. My mental health book, Happy Not Perfect, is available to order now. The book teaches you how to be a flexible thinker, a skill that helps you navigate any challenge that might come your way, helps you manage emotions and helps you thrive to be the bendiest version of yourself. Until next time, I love hearing from you. So do shoot me a message on Instagram, send me a DM with any of your thoughts. Stay safe and well.